Respected audience, welcome once again to a live drive time show for the Voice of Islam. In With me in the studios is uh, Imran Sahib and uh, I'm Rana Adal Rahman. Um, yeah, this is a different experience sitting in the uh, hot seat without um, Talib Saab. Uh, mm-hmm. So... Uh, Let's crack on with the show today. So, um, how's the weekend been, been for you? What have you been up to, Imran? Yeah. Uh, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Um, I think wonderful this weekend because uh, um, this is the, the weekend. On weekdays, uh, we have our um, MK UK, the youth, Amdiya Muslim Youth uh, Ishtima, which is an annual gathering, happened uh, for three days, uh, 28 29 and 1st of October. Mm-hmm. I think it's a wonderful experience to to go there and experience uh, there's so many youngsters c- coming across and making the atmosphere, you know, uh, you, you can feel the uh, atmosphere, brotherhood, love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, so the, the, the main purpose of this event is to, you know, as the Holy Quran says that fasta bikumul khairat, that excel or vie with one another in good deeds. So um, th- th- there is a two aspect of this um, program. One is the spiritual aspect. So we have uh, the academics program. Yeah. For example, uh, recitation, how beautiful you can recite the uh, verses of the Holy Quran. Then you have the poetry of the promised Messiah, yeah. and so many other competitions like um, religious knowledge competition, quiz competitions. And then you have another side like a sports competition, which we have in, in which we have uh, cricket, football, um, um, you know, heavyweight. So just to summarize, mm. this is like a, this has been a three, three week, you know, three weekends of um, all of the auxiliary organizations of the Ahmadiyya community Absolutely. where they will be doing their gathering. So I think previously last week, the um, the ladies, the Lejnaut, Absolutely. they did their gathering, um, the men's, uh, the children as well. Mm-hmm. They were also uh, they they had this this Absolutely. weekend uh, uh, this weekend mm-hmm. the elderly um, gents who are over the age of forty the other okay. side, they will be okay. doing their gathering so mm-hmm. so this is like the you know a year of uh, the the weekends of uh, Ishtamaz but that's going to be the first. You know, just the first uh, starting off for our show mm. um, subjects for our yes, show. Yes, absolutely. Um, and in the second part, we'll be discussing. We'll be discussing about cloning and is it ever ethical in the first hour, and uh, the definition of cloning and the religious perspective of cloning, and 
um, you know, the cloning uh, of the, um, there, there are various types of cloning, for example, human cloning uh, in vegetation cloning. So uh, we'll be discussing that uh, in the later. Okay, so uh, jumping straight back to our first part of the program, uh, we have our first caller and uh, he was also a colleague of mine. Uh, during Jamia, we have um, Imam Rawahuddin Khan Sahib. Uh, he should be online now. Jee, as no. How are you doing, guys? Uh, alhamdulillah. How, uh, how are you, Rawah? Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Uh, we, good, to hear. good to hear from you too as well. I heard your uh, namaz, I heard your salat during the... Um, the ishtamah and it was um it was like it was it was amazing it was really refreshing to hear you know you um so um <laughs> let's just crack on anyways um so uh rahuddin please tell us about this weekend uh this weekend's mk ishtamah retreat for those who yes, haven't heard of it absolutely. before and its purpose i mean you you mentioned something in the beginning um about this year's ishtamah it was uh basically ishtamah means gathering where people come together and when in our community we speak about ijtima, we usually speak about a specific event um, that is helping our, our religious, ed- moral education and upbringing and, and development. Um, and as you mentioned that we've got these auxiliary organizations within our community. So the men can have their own um, uh, gathering uh, for three days, mm-hmm. uh, the the ladies and the uh, the youngsters as well. So mm-hmm. the previous weekend we had uh, the gathering for the youth uh, that goes from year age seven to um, uh, forty, okay. uh, which is quite a big spectrum. But again, mm-hmm. we had uh, something for everybody. So mm-hmm. um, as I mentioned, that these these events, these gatherings are there that we develop in our spirituality because we observe prayer together, mm-hmm. we eat together, we meet old friends together, we get to know one another, and we also um, indulge in delicious uh, food and also uh, get to, um, you know, uh, be inspired by guest speakers. Mm-hmm. So apart from that, we also vie in good deeds with one another, and that could be seen uh, through the individual and team competitions. So uh, in individual competitions, we had, you know, uh, a recitation from the Holy Quran. We okay. had, you know, uh, a poetry. We had uh, giving the, you know, uh, saying the Adhan, the, the religious call for prayer, um, you know, speeches uh, competition, extempo speech camp competition, um, essay writing, poster competition, video competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many other things and for as team competitions as well we had so many uh, various team competitions and this was just the um, the ed- educational side of uh, this year's gathering this year's ishtama okay. and we also had sports competitions so uh, we had also individual sports competitions uh, you know uh, and also team competitions so um, boys from age 7 to 14 had uh, their own activities, then also kids under age of seven mm-hmm. were able to enjoy the ishtama. Um, uh, you know, there were bouncy castles for them and various <laughs> activities and uh, things. So, so they get to know what it's like to be part of such a great event. Okay. So, okay. everyone had something that would you know interest them from exhibitions um, to talks fireside talks we also had a specific area 
where um, we had uh, campfires and, you know, the boys would just gather around, uh, have a cup of chai and mm -hmm. sit down and talk to one another and get to know one another. Um, so, yeah, we had different various activities for all kinds of people every, every for everyone's taste mm -hmm, beautiful so, beautiful mom um, didn't you explain that you know the purpose of this uh, gathering is to you know create love and excel a uh, why with one another in good deeds um very well said now what are the some of the you know main highlights of the event for you especially so obviously for for everyone who attended uh, the ichnama the main highlight was uh, the presence and also the um, uh, the address of uh, our beloved uh, Imam, mm -hmm. the global caliph of the Muslim community, Hazrat Mazar Masroor Ahmed, um, who addressed us um, on that three-day ijtama on the last day, okay. the final session, where he spoke to um, all the youngs, everyone sitting there, and uh, you know, your listener would be surprising to hear that it wasn't only those couple of thousand youth sitting there listening to him but people from all over the world uh, via our online channel MTA mm -hmm. uh, Muslim Television India were able to listen to him live uh, listen to to the address where he educated us about our um, <coughs> uh, about how we should uh, live our life and what kind of um, paths we, we should on and uh, also that we should develop ourselves morally and spiritually uh, and also educationally and all of that you know uh, was beautifully addressed to to the youth uh, of this day and age so Raha, what new things were at this year's event that you might have not seen the year before so something that was new this year was that we've got we had a specific area called Tent City, so mm -hmm. um, you know boys were able to uh, either pitch their own tents or hire hire a tent where they could stay and spend the night. And um, you know going through that bit of struggle where you don't have the comfort of your home and um, you know having uh, un or undergoing that kind of um, uh, difficulty, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It also, um, you know, enhanced your spirituality because you were, uh, y you know, you were humbled. You were, you were, you know, you you, you spend these yeah. days in humility and worship of God Almighty. So we've got that ten city area, which was beautiful, and we also had something that wasn't there pre in previous years, uh, in, in previous years, especially during COVID, was we had. A barbecue competition okay so from the whole of UK uh, from as far as Scotland to uh, you know um, we had every each region um, had a barbecue and we had a few judges that uh, went around and tested the food and um, the good thing was that all the regions that prepared the barbecue very uh, excellent and taste and then presentation and everything. Um, the good thing was that right after the competition, all the boys, men and boys present in this gathering, in this ishtama, were able to then join the feast mm -hmm. uh, because we had 19 different barbecue stands okay. from 19 different regions. Mm -hmm. And no one 
uh, you know, refused anyone coming. So everyone enjoyed the food for free. Um, and, you know, it was an amazing atmosphere. Yeah, you know, Rawal, um, in regards to the barbecue competition, I'll just like, uh, I can remember, um, this was probably in the year like, 1999 2000 2000 up to up until 2003 mm-hmm. or 4 I reckon yeah. that there was um this was this was one of the mig- biggest like highlights of the Ishtama okay I remember back then they used to set you know every region was given an allotted amount of space mm-hmm. in Islamabad the Ishtamas used to take place in Islamabad okay and uh, there was a lot of effort going in by every region in preparing uh, a barbecue so this was a this was actually a great throwback to okay to i think that. th- that leads to your next question yeah. so yeah. imam c- can you tell us you know the, you, you mentioned barbecue and uh, you know uh, eating together and having feast together and playing together praying together so how important is it to create unity and brotherhood in the youth i mean it's it's very very important um you know we we, we these kind of opportunities just come once a year that mm-hmm. we have um gathering where not only you know uh, we, we come together from different parts of the UK and uh, you see one another after you know a long time and you meet your friends and i think it's these kind of opportunities where when you create a bond of brotherhood and friendship that it will last you know years and years and you know you still have those memories cherished even after decades like you know your your colleague um Adar just uh, you know mentioned <coughs> about 1999 mm-hmm. we had the barbecue so the, these kind of memories where you exactly remember who you were with and you develop this this kind of friendship this this brotherhood because allah almighty says in the holy quran that innamal mu'minuna ikhwa mm-hmm. that the believers mm-hmm. are like brethren they are brothers Beautiful. and uh, that we should, you know, try to uh, create um, an atmosphere of of peace with with one another, where we try to help one another. We resolve each other's problems. We, uh, you know, when we meet, we uh, we ask you, how are you doing? If 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 someone has, you know, is in sorrow or grief or in happiness, whatever state a person is in, if, you know, one. And especially in Islam, when you meet your brother, you 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 share those moments with him. You you're there for him, um, whether in happiness or sorrow. So it, these are the moments where, uh, and and especially the gatherings and and events where we create a strong brother. And it's very important uh, within Islam to develop that because as a community, uh, you have to kind of develop that bond of brotherhood with one another. So Arif, besides the, um, you know, you already mentioned the importance and the main highlight being Hazur's, uh, His Holiness's address. Um, could you shed light on anything besides that which you reckon is um, is one of the key highlights of the Ishtama? Yes, so um, of course, the, the you know, the, the whole uh, address of um, our beloved Imam was, was spectacular and very faith-inspiring. But one particular aspect I'd like to mention was uh, when um, our global caliph mentioned about um, the oath that uh, was taken by the second caliph, yes. his predecessor, uh, the second caliph, Hazrat Muslim Aud, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, who uh, initiated, uh, 
you know, these auxiliary organizations. And he said that from time to time, we should refresh this oath, then we should, uh, this specific oath, uh, oath, which he then mentioned. And it was basically just to summarize that, you know, we would be always ready to, to sacrifice our, our time, our wealth, and honor for the sake of the propagation of Islam and Ahmadiyyat, and we would always strive to uh, create goodness and uh, abstain from anything that is, um, you know, vain. Um, and basically, cre this also uh, speaks volumes that, you know, when we, um, as a community, as a youth organization, also, you know, go out and propagate Islam, we do charity events, mm -hmm. we do all these kind mm -hmm. of things, which is basically... It's, it's nothing new within Islam, but it, it is basically refreshing our faith by saying that, look, Allah Almighty has asked us to, um, to worship Him and also to serve mankind. So both of these things we have to keep reminding us over and over again. And the best, best thing to do is, you know, uh, by taking a pledge that, okay, now, I'm, you know, I, that I solemnly pledge that I would, will be doing uh, as you know, God Almighty wants me to to do, and this is kind of the the situation where our beloved Imam, uh, you know, uh, took this pledge with us, and this was a very emotional uh, moment where you know, from these couple of thousand uh, you know boys that were present listening, everyone, even those that were sitting outside of the main marquee would get up uh, and be part of the pledge and repeat the wordings that uh, his, uh, our beloved Imam, uh, you know, uh, took from us. So um, it was a very, very emotional and very blessed opportunity to repeat that pledge that was uh, taken or that was given to us initially by the second caliph and was mm -hmm. now uh, repeated by our beloved Imam. Thank you for your time, uh, Arif. It was lovely listening to you and that was brilliant insights into this week's uh, Khudam Ishtama. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're listening to Voice of Islam. You can call us on 0208 687 7878. Well, that was a you know that was a wonderful insight, mm -hmm. um, especially in regards to um, the key highlights that he made. Mm -hmm. Was of course the address of um, His Holiness, um, and besides that, the you know he he laid a long uh, a great emphasis on the actual pledge of allegiance, which is um, taken by the Khudam. I would believe nearly every. Uh, key session and mm -hmm. obviously once behind uh, his holiness as Absolutely. well and the importance of that is the the youth you know mm. th th this this uh, con this congregation this convention is uh, the main purpose of it is obviously to remind the youth of what their you know what their purpose in life is okay, and who they belong to and what is their true identity Absolutely. and that pledge um, when it resonates within them mm -hmm. uh, it's a, it's a timely reminder mm -hmm. and you know these reminders are very necessary very um, yeah. with time in regards to obviously when you uh, attend the jalsa as well mm -hmm. so um, i we think i think his holiness also mentioned in in his speech that you know every uh, youth every young khadim the youth of uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community should, you know, um, should recite you know these kind of pledges again and again in order to remind him of the purpose of his life. And 
is he or not you know serving uh, the the purpose of islam which is you know uh, worshiping his creator and serving the the creation of allah taala i think uh, the the imam uh, rawahuddin explained beautifully the purpose of uh, you know the purpose of these kind of gatherings so one of the you know youngster asked me as well uh, you know that um, what why should we go to the ishtima so i explained him you know and that you know if you look towards the islam the theme of islam is that it it wants everyone to unite you know so for example um islam commanded his believers to uh, basically um to offer five congregation prayer and in order to that in order to offer that you have to come to the mosque and this is a sort of gathering then uh, you know the, the holy quran commanded us to to read uh, or to offer juma prayer which is on which you know whole of the you know um, uh, whole of the people are recommended you know the, the vill- who are living around the mosque to to you know um, to attend that gathering then there's eid prayers whole of the city gathers together and uh, they offered eid prayer which is here which after come you know which comes after ramadan uh, and then we have a hajj you know hajj uh, when all of the muslim ummah around the world they gather mm-hmm. and they you know uh, do pilgrimage okay. to the house of allah taala so uh, i explain him that the theme of islam is uh, to basically um, to create that bond between each other and also to create brotherhood and this is also the purpose of the ishtima. okay so the second uh, element of the ishtima itself was that the children our atfal the um, you know you could say the youth that were below the age of 15 they also attended for this uh, we have our guest labid mirza okay. who is a uh, he works in the publications department mm-hmm. in atfal at the mk ishtima so uh, uh, peace be upon you labid tella Uh, wonderful to have you on our show so can you describe what you think is the main purpose and objective of the ishtima so the purpose of an objective ishtima i mean there's many really um of course uh, uniting us for for one big cause which is to strive in the way of god to <coughs> rejuvenate our souls as well but also i think something that which is quite important is that sense of identity mm-hmm. um especially when you look at much of the fall and the muslim and the it's part of who we are it's something that we've been told from a young age you're a tifal you're a khadim right and 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 your job is to serve the faith and we've been reciting these pledges but having these kind of events kind of reminds us of what that actually means what being a khadim means or being a tifal means what serving the cause means mm-hmm. so the ishtima caters to children as young as 7 What sorts of activities and resources did you have available for young kids? <laughs> Actually, it, um, it's for kids under seven as well, and we have that oh, okay. facilitation as well. But you are right, as in at twelve, and they did start at seven years old. Um, we we have under sevens on uh, for for a specific oh, time. I, sh- I should have bought my my two year old. <laughs> you should have. You should have. There's plenty of shoes, but um, uh, yes, yeah, so there's so many activities. I mean. Um, of course you've got some sports competitions and academic competitions but there's so, such a big variety i mean uh, of things more than that um once now we've been doing for the past you know couple of years and we did it again this year um is a thing called find your khi challenge which is sort of um, a khi obviously meaning brother mm-hmm. in, yeah. in in arabic my mm-hmm. brother right mm-hmm. and so what we do is each they feel being given a unique number uh, well, when i say unique as in they have a, they have a pair so if i get given the number 5 Um, I have to walk around, ishtama, speak to people, try 
finding out what uh, other people, what their numbers, and when I find a match, then we, we, we both win a prize. But the, the prize is just a small part of it. The actual thing is getting a trial to be talking to each other. You know, it's, it's sort of an icebreaker for them to start a conversation mm-hmm. with someone else. And as a way, you make lifelong friendships. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that we did. I think that, that, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, go. Please, please, carry on. Yeah, um, no, other than that, I mean, like, there was just so much that was, like, um, uh, the hub this year was was full of um, really interactive and, like, engaging activities. Um, the Royal Air Force gave this really amazing VR, like, sort of flight simulator kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Other than that, there was, um, you know, uh, these interesting talks. Because the thing is that interesting talks that really cater for kids around that age, Atfanem is very vast 7 to 15 right so and um, some of the old Ritval who are turning into Khadam mm-hmm. some of the questions that they might have in their minds about you know the existence of God um, uh, being being a Muslim in Western society and things like this right that they were sort of spoken about as well other than that um, we had a Young Marvinin challenge as well which is sort of preparing children for um life as a khadim so uh, in, in very small ways right mm-hmm. so just to sort of a small competition to sort of teach them or sort of uh, make them compete yeah. in um various duties i think uh, yeah so i was yeah we was previously talking about you know the brotherhood that islam spread brother and you also spoke about you know uh, that every you know atfal or youngster um he has a, his unique number and if if he find is uh, is uh, another akhi a brother he will get a prize i think it's a unique way of creating that brotherhood and harmony which islam talks about but this year themes you know this year um, theme of of the of the gathering ijtema salat is the delight of our eyes which is the also the saying of the holy prophet so how did you make this relevant and understandable to young children especially you know you mentioned that they're also the children children are participating um, as young as seven years old yeah so i mean <clears throat> i think the thing is because our estimate is based on salat anyway as in terms of the time to wear everything um and i remember in 2018 we had a very similar theme as well and has all mentioned then as well that it's not just the theme for this one it's the most you know it's overall uh-huh. um but um one thing that was quite interesting that we did this year was so we, we had this thing called the experience wall mm-hmm. and we basically asked kids to come and write on this wall mm-hmm. what salat the delight of my eyes means to them mm-hmm. and the answers were just amazing right it's just children's in the it's at one time of the day we get to speak to God. It's I remember one tefil wrote. It's it's uh, salad is a spiritual food for our souls, right? Amazing. And um, <laughs> it's the thing that nourishes us. So um, I mean, really, what it was, or really what it is, mm-hmm. is giving children living examples of a living God. Mm. And when you do that, they will come to salad themselves because they realize. That as long as a living God is out there, which He is, there's a means and a, com- a way to communicate with Him as well, mm-hmm. and th- and that's what we did. Okay, Jazakallah uh, for your time, uh, Labid. Uh, it was really nice speaking to you, and um, it was wonderful the way that you gave insights of how the Atfal, um, the Atfal department also, you know, ran and helped uh, create a memorable Ishtamal for the children. Exactly, exactly.
Um, you are listening to voiceofislam.co.uk, um, Voice of Islam Drive Time Show, and uh, the number to call us is on 0208-687-7878. So I think that leads to uh, the the the, uh, the uh, second hour uh, topic of this hour. Oh, this hour, yeah. Uh, the cloning. Is it our ethical or not? I think um, to just to just explain to our listeners what is cloning. So cloning is the process of. Uh, you know um generating a you know genetically identical copy of a cell or an organism and clonings happen all the time in the nature uh, in biomedical research cloning is broadly defined to mean the duplication of any kind of you know biological material for scientific study such as uh, you know a piece of dna or an uh, identical cell so this is uh, you know this is what cloning is and the fifth, uh, the, the fifth of July marked the seventeenth anniversary of the first ever clone uh, mammal, Dolly the sheep. During these seventeen years, we have seen numerous developments in uh, recombinant DNA technology, and these advancements have made the practice easier than it's ever been. But how far will we go? And cloning defined by producing a genetically identical copy, as I mentioned before, of a cellular organism and is done for various reasons. However, the question is, it is, al- is it always an ethical practice or not? In the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says that uh, thou hast not learned, thou, hast thou not heard of him who dispute disputed with Ibrahim about his Lord because Allah had given him kingdom. When Ibrahim said, My Lord is he who gives life and causes death, he said, I also give life and causes death. Ibrahim said, Well, Allah brings the sun from the east, bring it thou from the west. Thereupon the infidel was dumbfounded. This is from chapter 2, verse 259. So, so uh, Imran, we also asked our audience, you know, the same question. Uh, you know, it's on our Voice of Islam okay. Instagram story as well. That, uh, is it morally acceptable to clone animals? And um, you could imagine that mm-hmm. the jury is out on this. It's 83% of our audience believe. No, it isn't. So oh, okay. Um, okay. this is like a, you know, it's it's. Um, it's I guess this is the answer of the well, question. It, it, it's, it's an opinion to uh-huh. the answer, uh-huh. um, but it's obviously a very unanimous opinion um, from our from mm-hmm. our audience. Um, mm-hmm. Going more into the history of this, the process of producing an uh, an organism from one ancestor to which it is genetically identical has taken centuries to master. Okay. The earliest form of cloning was vegetative propagation, which is the cloning of plants. Fun fact. The word clone is derived from the Greek root klon, meaning a uh-huh. bud, meaning a bud and sip of a plant. Mm-hmm. For an idea of how old this practice is, the earliest agricultural book was printed in England in the year 1523. It taught people how to perform vegetative propagation through various methods, meaning it was already a well-established practice. So mm-hmm. this practice was obviously, you know, was taken to the next level with the advancements. Okay, of so science. vegetative uh, cloning was was basically already. It's it was like a, a yeah, it was um, something that you know the idea was there, mm-hmm. and uh, that's well, that little idea becomes the genesis okay. of something. So in far. recent years, the the human cloning and uh, other kind of clones just you know that's just the advancement of okay. science. Okay, okay. so. Uh, and it's it's not like um, we will go through this in our in our program as well. Okay. It's not like it's a it's the uh, it's the end goal. It's been achieved. It's okay. something that's const- uh, the scientists are continuously, continuously working to perfect. But okay. I don't you know we, we are we are as um, 
let's say this is the voice of Islam and mm-hmm. our opinion in regards to this has to be uh, in line with Islam. Yeah, um, absolutely. This is something which I and you, maybe everyone believes mm. that uh, it's something which we will never be able to perfect in mm. regards to the actual creation, the mastery of creation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, we'll talk about this yeah. later. Um, mm. However, first animal cells were cloned when Briggs and King transferred the nucleus from an early tadpole, em- uh, tadpole embryo into a enucleated en- en- frog egg, okay. forming a tadpole in the year 1952. Did you know that the reason that, that it is far easier to clone plants is because their cells are uh, totipotent, mm-hmm. meaning that they can specialize into any cell. No, so basically, I, I didn't know that, but anyways, yeah. <laughs> so basically, is a, the mammal uh, cloning is far more difficult than the you know uh, the cloning in 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 plants and stuff yeah. like that. Okay, that's fair. so. So uh, for our uh, this this segment of our mm-hmm. program, uh, we have Matty Hayright, uh, expert on biotechs and an author of uh, an author of article on the ethics of cloning. Um, so first, let's listen to uh, what Matty has to say about this. Could you discuss the earliest ethical considerations that emerged when cloning was first proposed as a scientific concept? Animal clones can be produced by splitting early embryos. At the first stages of their development, all the cells are omnipotent, meaning that they can all develop into full individuals with the same genome. Identical twins are a result of spontaneous embryo splitting. Twigging and twinning did not raise any serious ethical objections. The criticism, in fact, started in science fiction rather than in science. Aldous Huxley's novel Brave New World marked a turning point 90 years ago. It presented a model of human reproduction based on endless embryo splitting in factory-like circumstances. Although the model was imaginary rather than real, the image stuck. Every time we hear the word cloning, our minds start producing scenes of clone armies taking over the world. When the actual science of cloning began to be discussed in the 1960s, It was in the context of improving human biology by genetic manipulation. And it was the combination of having children without sex and making them by design that was seen as unnatural, perverted and wrong by some. Hmm, Interesting. There's always been religious opposition against the idea of cloning, but do scientists generally support it? There has been religious opposition against human reproductive cloning since the 1960s, but faith traditions differ in this respect. Buddhism, Islam and conservative Christianity forbid the practice. Hindu, Jewish and moderate Protestant theologians only say that there is need for caution. As for scientists, some of them do it routinely, either with non-human animals or, in the case of stem cell research, with humans. Human embryonic stem cell cultivation, also known as therapeutic cloning, is illegal in some countries, but legal in others. Scientists abide by the laws, but they involve themselves in cloning if it's not prohibited. Can you shed light on how society and the academic community reacted to the first successful mammal cloning in 1996 and the ethical discussions that followed? Yes, this is when Dolly the sheep was produced by researchers in Scotland. 
The novelty was in the technique used called nuclear transfer method. You remove the nucleus of an ovum, an egg cell, extract the nucleus from an ordinary somatic cell of an adult individual and insert the somatic cell nucleus in the emptied egg cell. If this succeeds, the result is a live embryo that has the genome of the nucleus donor. The cloning of Dolly suggested that all mammals, including humans, can be cloned by using the new method. And this proved to be the problem. No one really minded the cloning of farm animals. This has become a lucrative industry since. But the idea of people being produced like this attracted heavy criticism. Most countries in the world reacted by legal bans on cloning humans. Religious leaders too issued declarations to condemn the practice. Philosophical ethicists were divided into those who preferred caution and those who supported the bans. All philosophers conceded that the method is too dangerous to be used without further research and experimentation. It took hundreds of attempts to create Dolly, and no one knew at first if she was healthy or not. Some believed that she would age sooner because the nucleus donor had already lived part of her life. More vocal critics said that cloning people like this would be unnatural, immoral and against human dignity. Higher powers, they maintained, create us and dictate our physical characteristics. It's not in our own remit to interfere with the work of God or nature. Can you elaborate on the ethical implications of genetic manipulation for specific traits and how these concerns have evolved over time? In theory, cloning and genetic manipulation are two different things. One is about reproduction, the other is about changing the traits of the future individual. They have been lumped together because the 1960s science enthusiasts saw in the combination an opportunity to improve the human race, making people healthier, stronger, more intelligent, you name it, they were for it. New biomedical technologies become mainstream and at least on the level of attitudes this has occurred with somatic gene therapies. It is alright, most people would now think, to change the genes of an existing person a little bit to cure a severe disease or prevent one from developing. Two other forms of genetic manipulation remain contested though. Is it alright if we do the modification to the germline, in other words make the change for the better inheritable? Some say yes, reducing the incidence of a hereditary disease must surely be an improvement. Others say no, who knows what the human-made artificial alterations will do in the long run. New diseases may take the place of the old ones and they may be even worse. And is it alright to enhance human traits beyond what is seen to be normal? Would it be desirable to give future people infrared vision if that were possible? Or should we make people kinder, more empathic? The jury is out in such cases. Some say yes, go for it. Others say it's dangerous to play God like this with our limited knowledge and powers. 
Anyway, the attitudes towards genetic manipulation seem to be softening with time. Thank you for that. And last question. What ethical considerations and challenges do you anticipate in the future of cloning technology and how might these shape the landscape in years to come? I'm at the moment myself working on two dimensions of the ethics of cloning that may become more focal in the near future. The first is the idea of pure cloning. I'm writing with Dr. Tuya Takala a book on this topic for Cambridge University Press. By pure cloning we mean reproductive cloning without genetic enhancement or manipulation. The combination is difficult to keep in control, but someone somewhere will at some point present a safe cloning technique for humans. Since most of the existing arguments concern cloning with manipulations, impure cloning, they may not work either for or against the pure form. We aim to bring out that aspect. The second idea is related to my own disbelief that people want to clone offspring for themselves. The disbelief is actually more general. I cannot understand why anyone would insist on bringing new people into this broken world of ours to begin with. I have explored this with my co-author Amanda Sukenik in a forthcoming book, also from Cambridge University Press, titled Antinatalism, Extinction and the End of Procreative Self-Corruption. For the book we studied the history of meaning, or the lack of it, in human life, and ran into some interesting historical sources. One of them was the 11th century Syrian philosopher and poet Abu al-Ala al-Mari. Let me cite some of his lines on the topic. Procreation is a sin, though not called one. To beget is to increase the sum of evil. Refrain from procreation for its consequences death. It is better for a people, instead of multiplying, to perish off the face of the earth. Against these acidic comments on reproduction, making people expensively, cumbersomely and dangerously by nuclear transfer cloning looks like a highly technological fever dream rather than anything that anyone in their right mind would do. That was very informative. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You are listening to Voice of Islam uh, Drive Time Show. You can contact us on 0208-687-7878. So we've just heard an interview from Matty Hayrai, who gave us a you know he gave us a historical uh, perspective, um, a scientific perspective, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, sci- uh, you know even a religious sort of research in regards to um, the ethics of cloning. Mm-hmm. So. Tell us more about the current projects that are going on. Okay, so, you know, uh, today, you know, in today's era, bacteria are cloned to, you know, uh, multiply sections of genes which need, uh, you know, which uh, which need researching. This is a useful and feasible uh, procedure. However, recently a new cloning industry has emerged. In 2015, Wyagen started offering services to clone people's pet. And this service has been sought, uh, you know, for, for by individuals seeking emotional solace after the loss of their cats and dogs and parrots. So this type of cloning is not done for the therapeutic purposes, but rather for commercial reasons. And Islamically, this may be seen as a waste of time and resources. Now, Islam highlights the significance of directing money towards charitable 
causes instead of wasting expenditures. As Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran, chapter 2, verse 111, Allah the Almighty says, And observe prayer and pay zakat, and whatever good you spend, you send on before you for yourself, you shall find it with Allah. Surely Allah sees all that you do so uh, i think there's, there's a couple of you know kind there are various kinds of cloning so first of all there is a uh, cloning of uh, plantation plant mm-hmm. ba- plant-based cloning then we have uh, cell, cell cloning you know so mm-hmm. then we have mammal and human cloning so um, now the um, recently in 2015 uh Wyden has started offering the you know service to clones people's pattern mm-hmm. i think um, uh, islamically um, it is. It is not. You know. Um, it doesn't. It d- Islam does it's not. It's a waste of time. It's a waste, waste of, of money. Waste That's of money it, as you well. Know, it's not. It's mm. not. Uh, it's not really uh, recommended at all. But mm. uh, you think about the sentiment in regards to why. You know what? What, what are people trying to manipulate? Here? Mm-hmm. Mm. So um, as you've seen, uh, growing up, uh, generally in the West and maybe all around the mm-hmm. world, you know there mm. are deep emotional attachments to uh, pets. Okay. okay? Um, it's it's something that I've. Uh, grown up watching okay so um people are you know it's like saying you know you're you're using that sentiment for commercial paces mm. and uh, you know it's maybe it's losing its um it's 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 essence and uh, i don't know if anyone's actually even tried to do this and what what their feelings are in mm-hmm. regards to their cloned pet does it does mm. it actually you know is that a is that something that's brought back their the thing that they were actually attached to the, the actual pet mm. that they were attached to so that's some you know, that's an interesting question now cloning okay. of plants is used by farmers to accelerate their crop production whilst ensuring that the plants produced are free of disease one example of this is the production of wheat opportunity to relate to Hazrat Mirza Masroor mm. Ahmed's a uh, time in Ghana and how he successfully helped so basically grow what in the country after carrying out a feasibility study. Mm-hmm. The use of cloning in medical research is a highly valuable. Bacteria are cloned as they facilitate the re- the replication of genes which are used in the research of disease. This cloning is also done for therapeutic, uh, therapeutic purposes mm-hmm. and to improve the longevity of human life. Islam encourages research if it's done to... I- to avert harm, gaining knowledge is greatly encouraged. The Promised Messiah has stated that there are three forms of acquiring knowledge. Knowledge through inference, knowledge through observation, and knowledge through experience. This correlates with the practice of cloning as it has come such a long way that we are currently inferring, observing, and experiencing the effects of cloning and are able to predict what types of cloning would be useful and necessary. Animals have been cloned to have gene mutations that help scientists study diseases and develop in the animals. Mm-hmm. This is done by removing DNA from the cell, from a cell taken from one animal and placing it, placing this into an un- in- inoculated, I, th- I hope that, that's our inoculated, mm-hmm. unfertilized egg cell from another animal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This egg then develops into an embryo and grows as an animal naturally would. This success in cloning animals raised questions about the potential of cl- uh, of to clone humans as if it were to happen it would be done in a similar way. Okay. Verily we created man from an extract uh, from an extract of clay then we placed him as a drop of sperm in a safe depository then we fashioned the sperm into a clot then we fashioned the clot into a shapeless lump then we fashioned bones out of this shapeless lump then we clothed 
clothed the bones with flesh. Then we developed it into another creation. So blessed be Allah, the best of creators. Then after this, you must surely die. Then on the day of resurrection, you will be raised up. You know, that's uh, summed up with the, mm-hmm. you know, the way that this has been explained is that there is the point where man got to the point of uh, creating life. Of okay. Creating life. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's just literally been trumped, or it's been completely refuted with mm-hmm. the you know these uh, these blessed verses of the okay. Holy Quran. Um, you know, I think I think I think you mentioned a very good point. So uh, you know the cloning for for the medical research is highly you know available, but when it comes to the human cloning and you know uh, when it's it's uh, um, when we're talking about the uh, you know, cloning of animals or, you know, altering the creation of Allah Ta'ala, then it's come on Islamic. So, uh, for example, Islam, you know, greatly emphasize on increases in, increases one's knowledge. For example, Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran, Rabbi Zidnilma. So he taught us the prayer that, oh Allah, uh, increase me in my knowledge. Then the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that, um, Talabul ilmi uh, faridatun ala kulli muslimin. That the, you know, seeking knowledge, uh, seek knowledge uh, is uh, compulsory on every mm-hmm. Muslim. And then the Holy Prophet in one of his hadiths say that uh, seek knowledge if, if you have to travel to China as well. So the, the seeking knowledge is not a problem. The, the thing is that, you know, when, when as a human being we want to interfere in the work of God Almighty. And this is actually one of the prophecy of the Holy Quran as well. So the, uh, in, in chapter 4, uh, verse 120, Allah the Almighty said that they will alter Allah's creation. So from this, uh, Holy Quran has prophesied the plastic surgery and genetic you know, engineering and cloning in, in this sort and, and in this sense. So, uh, you know, uh, res- for such purposes, the cloning is not bad. But when we talk about the human cloning and this is yeah. un-Islamic. Well, let's listen to what um, the fourth um, leader, the fourth successor of the community okay. uh, had to say about, you know, on this subject. He's answered some brilliant answers on literally every subject now. Let's hear what he has to say. Okay. Uh, recently in the newspapers we've seen cloning coming through, uh, yes. clone the sheep. Can there be any good to be gained from scientist games such as this? None whatsoever. The only thing which can uh, unfortunately happen is the disaster <coughs> for which they must wait. <coughs> you see the purpose of uh, preservation of species is achieved by the creation of two sexes and conjugation <coughs> and all the human pleasure hinges around this pivotal design of God. Family is created through this. Closer ties between father and children, mother and, uh, and children, husband and wife, etc. make one entity of a home which is manageable, which is uh, in fact a haven from uh, the worldly problem, etc. Within a society, a small haven of course, but to that haven, those who belong to such good homes always return with full trust, even if they have met calamities, which is the family unit which takes care of, of them. It all 
moves around the spiritual concept of man and wife reproducing. Hmm. What will be the structure of the society after cloning? Yes. Already you have fallen apart enough. <laughs> Already homes are broken. And the pleasure you receive out of this, where will that pleasure be received? How? Hmm. So, there are two different types of disasters simultaneously befalling man. The disaster of the dissolution of institutional marriage and the disaster of meeting other sex only for the sake of pleasure with no other purpose. Right. And this will destroy your homes, royalties, everything. The whole society will be shattered into pieces. This is what they go for. And this is what God warned against in the Holy Quran when it said that the Satan would uh, incite my servants to change the creation of God, my creation. And when they do it, they'll be punished. Can't escape from the consequential punishment. So whether it is a change is brought about by genetic engineer in producing new forms of life or by changing the creation or method of creation, it will end up into disaster without fail. So in the book which I have men been mentioning before, mm. I have uh, already completed. I think the last chapter is now being revised. A little bit of it is left, otherwise all the work is ready. There, I also, uh, without knowing of the cloning, etc., I have already answered this question. I warn the mankind that if you disregard the Quranic uh, warning of not interfering, or the consequences of your interference with the creation of God, you may, may create genetic slaves which will begin to rule you. <laughs> and uh, there will be no running away from them. If this is what you want, go ahead and do it. But let's hope we'll not live long enough to see that. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So that was um, the fourth successor of the Ambia community, the fourth, uh, the fourth leader, uh, explaining expertly his views on the, uh, or his, his research as well on the subject of cloning. Now, although religion sets elevated ethical standards, ethics is not confined to religion. Let's talk, o let's talk about the secular standpoint on human reproductive cloning. Outside of Islam, the consensus remains that it is inherently unethical. It, it is an, an inherently unethical practice for several reasons. It is extremely difficult to clone mammals. It took the scientist Ian Walmart 270 trials to successfully wow. clone Dolly. The practice would require a significant investment of both time and money. In addition to this, the cloning of mammal often results, mammals often results in handicapped individuals. Common conditions indulge gross obesity, dysfunctional immune systems and organs, early death 
and distorted limbs. Dolly was uh, euthanized in 2003 to end her suffering when okay. a CT scan sadly revealed tumors growing in her lungs. The Islamic perspective on human cloning. There are numerous verses in the Quran which teach us the which teach us values which are applicable applicable in this subject area my lord grant me a righteous son to allah belongs the kingdom of the heavens and the earth he creates what he pleases he bestows daughters upon whom he pleases and he bestows sons upon whom he pleases these very verses discourage any attempts to emulate allah as the as the ultimate creator uh, emphasizing instead the humility and submission of people to divine will therefore it can be inferred that cloning is seen as a vo- as a violation to the sanctity of life and aspiring to mimic Allah's creative power as it manipulates the composition of DNA which is in the hands of Allah yes absolutely from this we can you know we can uh, drive that there are certain kind of cloning uh, which are often carried out for for the research purposes is permitted in Islam but however the types which carried out uh, mere for curiosity are prohibited due to them being you know ethically concerning and being a waste of time and resources that is why allah the almighty says that uh, to him uh, allah the almighty the kingdom of heaven and the earth belongs so uh, i think this is this some of the whole thing um, and now we'll go to the five o'clock news Voice of Islam Radio. Well, welcome back for the second hour of the drive time show of Voice of Islam. You are with me with uh, Imam Imran Sahib, uh, Imran, and uh, we have um, a very interesting second hour subject mm-hmm. in regards to, um, you know, Imran, could you maybe yeah, shed so a bit light onto that? Yeah, so um, for the second hour, uh, we'll be discussing uh, regarding drug misuse and the de- de- decriminalization is decriminalization the answer so uh, for example if, if you know what is decriminalization and uh, the introduction so drug misuse a complex you know societal uh, societal issue is prompting discussion about the potential benefits and backdrops of decriminalization as a response within the context of drug misuse various substances are being used in ways that have detrimental effect on individuals and society as a whole the debate centers on whether decriminalization could provide a more effective approach to addressing drug related challenges and this you know discourse examines the multi-phase aspect of drug misuse the role of decriminalization and potential implication for individuals as society 
so this is you know so how to basically sum up the um the basically debate that some people think that you know decriminalization of drug is the way forward mm-hmm. in order to tackle you know drug misuse problem and something you know you have to punish people mm-hmm. so this is the debate uh, which is going on currently on drug use and what do you think about this i think um, islamically you know um, i think for for the decriminalization is is the thing that you know um people are not punished for mm-hmm. their for their crime uh, for for having small amount of you know drugs and uh, the the the, the, the pers- perspective is to basically put more resources on curing people on mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, on putting more money on health system yeah. rather than you know just yeah. filling not, not people not waste your resources on not, something like okay yeah. but and it is important in regards to you know if you can eliminate it from a very uh, even if it's a small amount mm-hmm. uh, you know as the we've heard as well that even you know small amounts of intoxicants could be are, are not are not permissible mm-hmm. um so the drug misuse poses a multifaceted challenge characterized by diverse factors contributing to substance abuse and addiction the misuse of substances such as opioids stimulants and hallucinogens can lead to adverse health outcomes social consequences and strained healthcare systems factors like uh, socio socioeconomic uh, disparities mental health issues and peer influences contribute to the complexity 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 of this challenge the holy quran states they ask the concerning wine and the game of hazard say both say in both there is great sin and also some advantages for men but their sin is greater than their advantage even though this holy quran uh, verse refers to drinking but it can also be related to drugs the sin of drug misuse is greater than the advantages of mankind now to speak more on this uh, subject in, in a more expert mm-hmm. um, pers- in a, you know we have vladimir posniak who is a md phd and a coordinator uh he's uh, part of the management of substance abuse department of mental health and substance abuse in the world health organization okay. so let's listen to what vladimir has to say about this so uh, so uh vladimir can you provide insights into uh the current international approaches to addressing uh drug misuse and actually their effectiveness i mean we've just seen i think in california the senate has passed uh, a bill to um decriminalize some uh, psychotropic uh drugs uh and also the situation over here in uh Scotland with the Scottish government actually pushing for the decriminalization of uh, certain drugs so um you know what what are your insights into you know these approaches oh. um i think uh, definitely there are many many uh, developments uh, currently in the area of drug policy in different jurisdictions um uh, if to speak about the overall international approaches to uh, the drug problem they are formulated in several important policy documents which are ratified by many countries and so it's largely drug conventions and also the uh, united nations general assembly a special session on drug on drugs in 2016 outcome document but when when we are talking about decriminalization i think we need to be very careful with what terms are being used for that because very often people mix up 
uh, the term legalization and decriminalization, decriminalization. And when, for example, in jurisdictions there are processes which are normally going through the legislative bodies, through parliaments, sometimes through the uh, cabinets, uh, on uh, legalization of uh, non-medical use of psychoactive substances. And first of all, it's about cannabis. Uh, this is the most uh, uh, common, um, uh, what we see now in, in, in several countries, and, and what has already been happening in, in many jurisdictions. This is, uh, uh, this is different from the decriminalization, uh, because uh, decriminalization actually means the removal of uh, um, of punitive uh, um, measures for criminal offense for substance yeah. use. And in fact, uh, the, the, the decriminalization has many public health benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, um, um, you know, drug use by any person with drug use disorders is just a key symptom of a drug use disorder. It's like a, a fever in acute viral infection. So you cannot, um, you cannot punish with the criminal sanctions of a person for the symptom of his underlying health condition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, criminal um, punishments and uh, and considering drug use as a criminal offense often results in discrimination of people who use drugs, um, and that's uh, that's something that. Uh, uh, definitely is detrimental to uh, social well-being and health of people. Um, but at the same time, um, but at the same time, decriminalization does not mean legalization because it's still prohibited. It's still drug use is prohibited uh, mm-hmm. in the in the country or in jurisdiction, but it's not considered as a criminal offense uh, or. Uh, the criminal punishment is not being applied in these cases. But it's very different when the drug use behavior uh, is moving from being prohibited in the jurisdiction to being allowed in the jurisdiction. And this is a process of legalization. So, so that's why I think it's important to distinguish these two concepts because often people mix up these two terms. The decriminalization or the legalization of it. So, um, what are the potential public health benefits uh, and also the risks associated with um, decriminalization of drug misuse then? Well, the benefits um, the benefits are numerous. Um, first of all, the uh, when uh, the system, criminal justice or health system or social system um, is um, meeting a person who uses drugs. Um, there are different levels of interaction when uh, uh, drug use is decriminalized. Um, the, uh, probably the most uh, uh, clear example of what criminalization can mean for health and for health consequences is the case of drug overdose. And mm-hmm. in many jurisdictions, when a person uh, witnessing uh, a friend or, or a relative or somebody um, with the clear signs of drug overdose, often they are not 
uh, eager to call uh, emergency medical services yeah, yeah. ambulances because of the fear of uh, subsequent criminal prosecution. Yeah, yeah. And so the person can die simply because of that. Also, mm-hmm. the uh, the acceptance of drug use, even in interaction with health professionals, uh, can be very problematic if this uh, is criminalized in the jurisdiction despite confidentiality rules in medical practice. So th- that's why the... Uh, and also uh, there are many cases when young people, for example, using cannabis uh, and... Uh, um, arrest, arrested uh, in case of um, criminalization of drug use by police, which has enormous profound implications for their future life, right? For their mm-hmm. future opportunities for everything. And definitely it's not, it's not good for, for their health and well-being. So that's why the benefits are uh, quite substantial. Um, uh, also, the uh, effectiveness of many services, like outreach services, like uh, prevention of drug-related infectious diseases services, like access to treatment services, all these and the effectiveness of these services will depend very much on what is the overall climate, legal, legal uh-huh. context of these interventions. So that's why uh, the public health benefits are numerous. What the risks are, uh, usually this uh, harsh um, criminal uh, execution uh, is pursuing um, one goal, to keep at the minimum possible level the overall level of consumption of drugs in the populations. But, uh, but in fact, it's, uh, if it's enforced, it brings so many negative, unintended consequences that um, often the um, the risks and the damage to uh, health and to well-being overwhelm uh, any potential benefits, which can be achieved, by the way, using other strategies and interventions in the same jurisdictions. So that's why... I think if uh, to make a summary, to, to do a summary, I would say that the benefits of decriminalization would overwhelm the risks. Would outweigh the risks. Yeah, but at the same time, it does not mean that you shouldn't be concerned with the prevalence mm-hmm. of, of drug use in populations. You should take all the uh, possible ethical uh, approaches respecting human rights that can allow you to uh, keep these levels, prevalence levels, at minimum level. But, mm-hmm. uh, again, we, uh, there are different ways to do that than to, uh, to make uh, drug use a criminal offense and have criminal sanctions uh, for those people who are using, who are using drugs. Mm. So, uh, with that... Um thought, what strategies and policies does the uh, World Health Organization recommend uh, for, say, the reduction and preventing the negative consequences of uh, drug misuse? Well, um, in fact, if to speak about the public health dimensions of the the world drug problem and what WHO uh, recommends in its documents, 
we can um, we can distinguish five major domains. Uh -huh. One is, uh, in fact, prevention of drug use and a reduction of vulnerability and risks. So basically, uh, to keep prevalence of drug use in populations at minimum levels. Uh -huh. um, uh, so, and there are several interventions which are which are uh, which have evidence of effectiveness. And first of all, it's uh, uh, family interventions, uh, some school-based programs, but uh, not very specific. So these school-based programs show uh, effectiveness when they are not so much targeting drug use, but more targeting uh, risk factors and resilience factors, which are common for prevention of drug use as well as for promotion of mental health. Prevention of many mental health conditions. The second uh, dimension and the second approach is related to uh, treatment, provision of ethical and effective treatment and care for people with drug use disorders. Uh, and that implies development of treatment systems that have multiple components, and WHO has very specific recommendations on early identification, diagnosis, and treatment of these conditions. But as we discussed previously, uh, the demand for treatment and uh, effectiveness of treatment depends a lot on the overall legal and social context when this mm -hmm. situation is evolving or when the treatment is requested. The next approach, which is also promoted by WHO, is the harm reduction approach. Uh, is the approach when um, the objective is to reduce health risks and prevent health consequences, not necessarily uh, requesting to stop or even reduce drug use. And there are multiple interventions which are promoted by WHO and supported by WHO. Uh, first of all, in the context of HIV and hepatitis, viral hepatitis prevention, but also in the prevention and management of drug overdose deaths. Uh, so this uh, low threshold programs, syringe and needle exchange programs, uh, low threshold um, um, programs of uh, uh, agonist maintenance treatment for opioid dependent people. So these are the examples which are recommended by the WHO. Uh, also, I would like to, to um, highlight two other areas when uh, often uh, they are neglected and at the same time are very important. Uh -huh. um, this is also related to the fact that one of the of the uh, of the parts of the overall equilibrium is that uh, some people use or start to use prescribed medicines, psychoactive uh -huh. medicines, and then they can move to uh, to street drugs, as happened, for example in some countries when um, prescription opioids were heavily promoted and, uh, and over-prescribed by okay. health professionals. So, the, so that's why, on one hand, we need to make sure that uh, the prescription is uh, uh, used, of, of this medicine is used when it's really indicated and needed and at the appropriate dosages. But second, and of course, we need to, uh, a lot of efforts go into reduction of supply 
of psychoactive drugs in populations. But we shouldn't forget that many of these substances are being used legitimately for medical okay. scientific purposes. And that's why every jurisdiction, every country, in fact, needs to find the right balance between prevention activities on one hand and ensuring access to controlled medicines for medical purposes like pain management, for example, or treatment of opioid dependence on the other. Yeah. So, and finally, it's, uh, it's uh, very important that, uh, particularly in the now rapidly changing situation with drug use and drug consequences, it's important to have good systems of monitoring and evaluation, monitoring what is happening in population, what is happening with, with health consequences, and what would be the best in this particular context, what would be the most effective approaches to apply. Of course, we have general scientific knowledge on effectiveness of different interventions, but I think uh, it's uh, critically important that in uh, every specific context, these effective interventions are being implemented, evaluated, and modified as necessary to meet better the needs of any specific population. Mm, yes, yeah, uh, I think I totally agree with that. Well, uh, Dr. Vladimir Poznak, thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show uh, and giving us uh, the World Health Organization's views with decriminalization of uh, drug misuse. Thank you very much. Thank you. You are listening to Voice of Islam Drive Time second hour show and if you want to contact us the telephone number is 0208-687-7878 that's 0208-687-7878 so after that um, you know excellent interview and uh, explanation by Dr. Posniak could you please give us a bit of uh, more insights into criminalization mm-hmm. and its drawbacks so absolutely we are talking about the decriminalization and it's uh, is it the way forward or not so you know uh, the normal approach is uh, you know uh, criminalization um let's talk talk about the, its back and uh, drawbacks so the traditional approach of uh, uh, criminalizing drug misuse has led to you know incarceration of individuals uh, involved in drug-related activities. However, this punitive approach has faced, you know, criticism for its, you know, limited effectiveness in reducing drug misuse and its associated negative consequences. And criminalization has led to overcrowded prisons, um, for example, socially stigma and limited access to treatment and rehabilitation. So, uh, you know, there are some of the uh, drawbacks of criminalization as ex- explained in this that, you know, um, those who are in the favor of uh, decriminalization, they say that, you know, uh, this approach is not good because we're just filling people mm-hmm. with the with the prisons and uh, we're not g- getting anywhere. And uh, those who are in favor of, uh, uh, you know, decriminalization of drugs, they, they said that we should put more money um, in health system and taking in, in health services than just putting people on the prison. So I think this is... But, you know, you always think about this sort of like um, from a point of view that, okay, if you do not uh, imprison them, 
you know, they are being left open to society, uh, those who are not just abusing drugs, um, who are also, you know, uh, you know, passing mm-hmm. them on, selling them. Mm-hmm. They are creating more issues for not just society through themselves, but are creating people uh, issues for others as well. And, uh, you know, at some point, these, uh, if, if you get to the point where you lose your senses, your own... Uh, control over yourself mm-hmm. um, then you are likely to commit a crime um, that will in eventually uh, get you into jail okay okay so you know it has to, you know how does it work you could mm-hmm. oh let's not throw them into jail because um, jails are getting overcrowded while they're being left in, into the world and mm-hmm. they can do something which might cause harm to others mm-hmm. and not just themselves and then they will they will they will end up in jail so um it has to work in a in a way that you know it's this is actually a very mm-hmm. complex uh, uh situation right so mm. uh decrim- um the benefits of decriminalization uh is that decriminal decriminalization could promote a shift from punitive measures to health-oriented interventions, such as education, prevention, and treatment. It may reduce uh, the burden on the criminal justice, as you've just mentioned Mm -hmm. as well, uh, the justice system, allowing resources to be channeled towards addressing uh, underlying causes of drug misuse. Individuals struggling with drug dependency could could be more likely to seek help without fear or legal repercussions. As a uh, hadith narrated by Jabir ibn Abdullah, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings uh, be upon him, said that if a large amount of anything causes intoxication, a small amount of it, uh, amount of it is prohibited. Drug mm-hmm. misuse could lead to intoxication. The above hadith uh, clearly prohibits that. Absolutely, I think um, you know. You previously were asking that you know uh, what is the what should you know. What should be the approach of uh, as, as a as a Islamic point of view? Um, I think that you know, Islam uh, Islam asks us to choose the middle way. Uh, I think the decriminalization uh, is is uh, you know, uh, it's a one way of looking at the things, mm-hmm. and also you know, uh, criminalization of of the of the drugs as well. But uh, I think we should take take this. Um, uh, take this problem in a neutral way we should put more uh, you know take care of the people uh, who are uh, you know taking drugs as an in, you know investing more in mm. health services and propagating that you know that stay uh, that people should stay away these kind of circumstances for, ex- for example Islam said that you know um, you always see companies of those who are righteous people mm. so you know Kunu Masa they can be with the righteous ones and one of the main main thing or that people do drugs in these kind of that a bad company or maybe stressed you know they are very stressed and they have nothing to do they have no jobs so one of the thing Islam tackles this issue is La Taknatu Min Rahmatullah that one should not despair uh, to the mercy of Allah Ta'ala mm-hmm. so there's always a way so you know people sometimes they become repressed and used, used uh, you know they start using uh, the drugs and then they ruin their life and the another aspect of of of, uh, of drug drug using is that people uh, use drugs because of the bad company. Mm-hmm. So the, the Holy Quran says that always always um, look uh, and sit with those people who are righteous, who has a who who are muttaqi, God fearing yeah. people. So these two aspects is explained by the Holy Quran, and I think uh, if we act upon these two aspects, most of us 
are you know not going yeah, to so what would hmm? you say is like a great, where could you find the right sort of company um, mm-hmm. where would you where would you suggest i would pr- probably say look um you know spending more time uh, in a holy place uh, spending more time maybe in sports as well you know mm-hmm. these are these are ways of actually avoiding company which could lead to bad mm-hmm. but anyways we have our first uh, live guest and that's dr Le- um that's uh, Dr. Anna Campbell, she's a professor at Queen University and co- co-director of Queen University's Drugs and uh, Alcohol Research Network. Uh, welcome, Dr. Anna Campbell. Thank you so much, Rachman. Thank you for your invite. Um, no problem at all. So, what is the relationship between drug de- decriminalization and harm reduction strategies? How do these strategies work together to address drug misuse? Uh, well, well, firstly, harm reduction covers a number of approaches that essentially try to keep people alive, try to save lives and allow people to enter treatment and to stay in treatment. Mm-hmm. And th- these can include um, uh, what's called use of a needle exchange, where people get clean paraphernalia, uh, use of what's called drug outreach teams, where we have our workers going out to people who are in dire need and who are dying of drug-related death. We also have a thing called substitute prescribing treatment, mm-hmm. which maintains people from uh, drugs like heroin. Okay. And we also look at uh, what's called bloodborne viruses, which unfortunately are um, they, they they can be spread through the use of needles. We mm-hmm. also, but besides that, we also try to include housing support, which is very important for people who are most in need, and we do that in a compassionate way. Uh, along with pathways to employment, mm-hmm. education and training, okay. uh, looking at women, for example, who have specific needs within the community, mm-hmm. and also looking at people's concomitant mental health needs and physical needs. So it's it's quite complex. And now that's harm reduction, and that's a myriad of approaches that yep. we utilise to try to help people most mm-hmm. uh, in need. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so uh, Dr. Anna. Uh, are there, you know, specific substances for which, you know, drug uh, decriminalization may be more or less, you know, <coughs> effective in reducing misuse and related harms? Uh, well, we, we have a number of examples. There's a number of are a number of states in the, uh, in America where drugs have been legalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly cannabis, well, primarily cannabis has been legalized. Now, there's a difference between legalization and decriminalization. Mm-hmm. Legalization is where the state controls and regulates the sale and production of the drugs. Decriminalization is where the state can still uh, prosecute somebody for use or holding drugs, but usually they prefer a pathway of treatment, Mm -hmm. a public health model to help people, particularly our young people, rather than get a, a criminal record to get them into treatment as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, Doctor, um, um, how do cultural and so- you know social factors influence the success or failure of you know drug decriminalization policies in different countries and regions? For example, I think there was a um, there was an experiment in I think Argentina, if I'm not, not yes. wrong. Yeah, and yes. is and th- that thought to be a successful um, uh, you know uh, experiment. So, if, for example, other countries want to, you know, uh, want to adopt this policy of decriminalization, do you think it will, you know, it will uh, become successful? 
Well, it, it depends. There are many countries who have done it in several different ways. I think the country that has uh, been going the longest and has the longitudinal results is Portugal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Portugal had the highest number of drug-related deaths in the whole of Europe in 2001. Okay. Um, and prior to that, and they introduced the decriminalisation model, which has a strong focus on social support and harm reduction measures. Um, again, safe injecting sites, counselling, support to people who use drugs, but essentially also looking at the social determinants of drug use, such as poverty, marginalisation, discrimination, oppression. And mm. the Portuguese mod- model has been very effective. Research has shown that it has decreased drug deaths substantially since 2001. Mm-hmm. And also the importance of the, uh, engaging with communities and stakeholders in the development of any drug policies. Uh, and the current English drug policy, I don't think now that um, I'm based in Belfast, Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. and the current English drug policy did not have a wide consultation period with different community members and different ethnic groupings. Mm-hmm. Uh, our drug policy in Northern Ireland was slightly different because we engaged with people who use services and we engaged with people from different ethnic groupings uh, as well as people who were not from ethnic mm-hmm. groupings. So we try to be as inclusive as possible. So we can't have a policy that excludes our different ethnic ethnic groupings across England and Wales. It's very important to mm-hmm. understand the needs of a specific community, the sometimes the guilt or okay. the shame or the feeling of services not being uh, not being. I suppose developed in a way that is needed by a specific um, community or ethnic minority. Mm-hmm. So, Doctor, uh, if it's a, it's a personal question, do you in favour of decriminalisation or against of this, this notion? Sorry, uh, do, you, do you do you in favour of decriminalisation of the drugs or you know against of this uh, this notion? What's your perspective? My perspective would be that the research has shown that it works in. Uh, a number of countries, both decriminalisation and illegalisation, and I come from a public health perspective. Mm-hmm. I see people, particularly young people, dying in our streets in Belfast, mm-hmm. and I work uh, with our colleagues in Scotland. Drug deaths have increased exponentially over the last number of years in England, mm-hmm. in Wales, in Scotland, and Northern Ireland, and the policies at the moment, we, we are keeping that number at bay but there, there are more things that we could do in order to reduce the number okay. of drug related deaths okay. so can you explain the role of tr- uh, of treatment and rehabilitation programs in the context of drug decriminalize decriminalization and their impact on reducing drug misuse well drug 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 rehabilitation and treatment programs i mean the, the, as I say, the most widely used approach is the recovery approach mm-hmm. in the UK, followed by the harm reduction approach. And we have a number of different stages of deliveries of different models, including inpatient models, outpatient models, um, a mixture of pharmacological or drug-based therapies to help people, along with what's called psychosocial therapies mm-hmm. to help people. The difficulty is that we need to target and commission our services in a different way. Now, in England and Wales, you were you were 
luckier than us in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. I have to say, because mm-hmm. you received quite a lot of money mm-hmm. from the drug policy and in the wake of what's called the Jane Carl Black report. Um, but we're waiting on an evaluation of that report and how that money is spent and how it was um, disseminated for the best outcomes for the greatest number of people. Okay. Uh, thank you for that, Dr. Anna Campbell. Uh, it was lovely li- uh, listening to you. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Once again, you're listening to Voice of Islam's second hour drive time show. If you wish to contact us, the contact details are 0208 That's 0208 And maybe I say for the first time as well, if you wish to tweet, mm-hmm. it's at Voice of Islam <laughs> UK. Right. So, you know, um, we were talking about and the misuse of drug and is decriminalization of drug is ethical or not or... Uh, is it practical or not? So, uh, you know, critics of decriminalization raise concern about potential normalization of drug use and increase availability. I think it's a valid c- concern as well because, um, in my opinion, when you give uh, sort of, when you don't uh, punish people or say there is no punishment for for the for the bad act, then people tend to. Uh, tend to do that thing more oftenly or without any fear. Uh, so I think the, the middle way is the is the way uh, that you know uh, the, the, there should be more money uh, or there should be more services regarding uh, the, 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 the the policy mm-hmm. uh, of the government that they should try to um, you know get away people of the using drug and then obviously uh, you know um, um, you know. Uh, they can also punish people and also and the the health perspective as well so there is also the risk of creating a dual system mm-hmm. where production and distribution remain illegal and yeah. potentially sustaining black market activities so this is also a, another challenge and striking the right balance between reducing decriminalization and discouraging drug uh, misuse is a is a you know critical challenge so these are the challenges in this aspect as well um, yeah, I mean, these challenges are, you know, uh, something which uh, obviously we have to, uh, we are trying to discuss and we are also listening to our experts on the subject. So for further, you know, uh, insight into this, mm-hmm. we have Nicola Bruce, who is, uh, she is part of Olia's Solicitors. Mm-hmm. So she is a senior associate solicitor specializing in criminal law and with over 20 years experience from both a prosecution and criminal defense perspective. So I'd like to welcome Nicola Bruce on our show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, No issues at all, Nicola. um, And thank you for joining us. So, Nicola, the first question that we uh, have for you is what is your opinion on the current drug laws and their effectiveness in addressing drug misuse and related allegations? Well, clearly drug laws are necessary as drugs are a serious issue for the community. They do destroy lives and communities. Mm-hmm. And offences such as, you know, the supplying of Class A drugs, it's absolutely necessary that, you know, there, there are laws in place because the significant harm that is caused by mm-hmm. that type of offending, which in, in turn, it causes other problems such as it involves children. We have the county lines issue and mm-hmm. modern day slavery. So, so, you know, yeah, there's nothing, no issue with that. And that's a, that's um, encouraged by the Misuse of Drugs Act. Uh, mm-hmm. 1971 prosecutes that. But in my opinion, the current mm-hmm. laws related to, to drug misuse ought to be reviewed in relation to the possession uh, for personal use okay. offences. Mm-hmm. 
And my reasoning being is that uh, criminalising people for the personal use of drugs is not really an effective way of tackling the personal drug misuse issue. Uh, I think uh, the previous uh, speaker just mentioned some of the points around that. Mm -hmm. Um, Often people who are using drugs for personal use are in need of some support or help. They could have mental health issues, physical health issues, um, and they're using drugs to self-medicate. And secondly, criminalising a person uh, for personal use could cause ultimately more problems in terms that it'll impact their employment prospects or Mm -hmm. current employment, impact their ability to continue with education, and ultimately that could lead to such devastating and life-altering effects in that they could lose a job, they could Mm -hmm. lose the house, mental health issues will increase. Mm -hmm. And so for for personal use, it just seems disproportionate to criminalise someone when they could be using drugs for self-medication purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting as well because it's an interesting topic that you're covering because it's mm-hmm. been such a hot topic recently. Right. You know, the, the UK government, um, there was a recent report about that. Um, the government's official drug advisors uh, were looking, prepared a report on discriminisation uh, of certain uh, drug offences, and this is in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still ongoing that, but but they that was supporting that there's little evidence that criminalisation or possession of drugs for personal use was effective in reducing drug use. Mm-hmm. And then earlier this year, we had the Scottish government didn't we challenging Westminster on uh, decriminalising all drugs for personal use, not just even the Class Cs or the Class Bs, but they were supported all drugs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, my view is. It seems it can it can seem disproportionate the criminalisation of a person and the sentence mm-hmm. um, when you weighed against the actual offending and the use of some, a small amount of drugs that was recovered from them that was for personal use. Mm-hmm. So Nicola, uh, you know, um, sometimes those who are in favour of uh, you know uh, criminalisation. Um, yes, of course, you can use a drug for medical reason, but some say that if you, if you don't, you know, punish people for having, uh, you know, drug, even if it's a small amount, then somehow that will give them the free hand, uh, that or that will, you know, the fear will go away of using drug, and that's how people will start using more and more drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do understand that there is uh, a risk of that. Um, mm-hmm happening and that's where that's where you get the issue of decriminalization mm. and the legalization of drugs mm-hmm. okay so Nicola, uh, can you um sorry i was just uh, uh, very interested to know that can you explain the key differences between drug decriminalization and drug legalization and how each approach might impact your clients well decriminalization that amounts to what you would call the halfway house mm-hmm. it's the removal of criminal sanctions against a certain drug um but it's still, uh, it still it still um will be punishable even mm-hmm. though um the, the the sanction will be much lower so i would advise clients to be aware that the drug um, will still be illegal, mm-hmm. but the punishment will be less harsh. Mm-hmm. So, for example, instead of a, a term of imprisonment, it could attract some kind of out-of-court disposal or fixed penalty or a caution. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but depending on uh, the the court, the type of disposal, they still have to bear in mind that it could impact their DBS. 
you know, their disclosure and borrowing services, which means yeah. that they may have to disclose that if they go for a job, mm. for, um, job applications. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so it would still be illegal, but um, the sentence would be reduced. The legalisation, um, this is where the substance in question becomes permissible by law, so mm-hmm. it's no longer an illegal substance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The drug will be become controlled, like tobacco and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, the drug is likely to be safer, as there'll be more quality control. The distribution would be controlled, so it would protect certain people and um, children, for example, and overuse, because there probably there may be some prescription service to it. Mm-hmm. Um, clients would not face criminal proceedings if they're in possession of it. Mm-hmm. It would create tax revenues for the government as a result of it, the control, mm. but um, the client, for any clients where it becomes legal, there would be restrictions on how much and how often maybe they could have it. Um, but it could help them in, in terms that it would be more um, controlled and there would be other avenues available to to anyone who was addicted to a particular drug. Mm-hmm. So, Nicola, as you're a your solicitor, so what are yes. some, you know, potential benefits and backdrops of decriminalization drug possessions and use from both a legal and you know uh, social perspective well i think the benefits of decriminalization um drug users may receive a pathway to drug treatment agencies because mm-hmm. uh, that would have to increase if it was decriminalized because the sentence would be reduced so, mm-hmm. But they'd have to make more avenues available at that level to address that type of offending behaviour. Um, and as such, if it's decriminalised and the, the sentence is reduced to, a, to an out-of-court disposal, for example, mm-hmm. it's unlikely to impact their, their future in terms of a loss of job or education, um, which ultimately may not have such negative effects on their mental health, which ultimately leads to more drug use. Mm-hmm. It will. It will. Assi- it should assist in breaking cycles of addiction. Um, any drug, drug people addicted to drugs should get the help they need and avoid punishment that outweighs um, that the offence that they committed. There'll be less drug dealing on the streets um, and the crime that's associated with drug dealing and exploitation of of children and vulnerable people to deal drugs. That's the, border, the, the modern day slavery and. Um, county lines issue mm-hmm. the drawbacks include a risk of increased recreational use which I heard alluded to before um, and also because the fear of punishment will diminish mm-hmm. uh, there's a, also a risk of increasing drug dependency and addiction but then yeah uh, it, it's kind of it's a difficult line it's a balancing act um, mm. uh, but I think ultimately criminalizing someone the impact of that because it it affects their future so extensively in that they can't then change their lives and get a job. It's not mm-hmm. easy for them because they've got this criminal record now. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so, yeah. So I would also like to know from your experience that are there any specific drugs or substances that you believe should be decriminalized and if so, why? Yeah, I did think about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think some class C drugs, uh, such as steroids and painkillers, they if you found in possession of those, you yeah. could attract up to two years' imprisonment for possession of personal use. Mm-hmm. And class some class B drugs, including cannabis and um, we know there's been debate around cannabis for many years. Yeah. But um, but class B, you could be fi- you could be imprisoned for up to five years mm-hmm. uh, for possession and an unlimited fine or both. 
And my reason is that these drugs um, are often used for to help the child, sometimes taken because a person needs that for medicinal reasons to help them cope with life mm-hmm. uh, and what you know conditions that they're suffering with. And so they could get some benefits from using that drug. Um, it's 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 not a drug that has the reputation of causing significant harm to a person as mm-hmm. you get with the, the the class a drugs such as heroin and and cocaine which are more addictive and can cause real real harm to a person mm-hmm. uh, and and the, the they're the drugs that are probably the i don't know what how much they are in value but in terms of the grand scale of drug supplies often around the class a drugs the heroin so these ones would be easier to control um and if they were um decriminalized they could be easily managed by pharmacists or, or other agencies mm-hmm. do you reckon what so decriminalizing um, heroin don't you reckon it could uh, lead to it being easily accessible to the wrong hands well i do i mean i don't think heroin i don't think at this moment in time our society is able to deal with decriminalizing heroin because it's such a, a, a massive systemic problem with addiction mm. to that that until those until there are enough um agencies in place to help people who are addicted other than prescribing them a methadone mm-hmm. as an alternative there needs to be more to tackle this um mm. this problem and and there are interventions in place at the moment but sending someone to prison they're not necessarily going to come out of prison mm-hmm. having received the benefit of a drug intervention program mm-hmm. so, they, they may have got clean and they've the, the detox mm-hmm. from it but they'll come out and they'll go straight back on it because the core core root to that addiction is still there yeah absolutely uh, so Nicola, they have been the experiment uh, experiment in uh, uh, i believe in portugal where they decriminalized the drugs and yes. they thought to be a successful experiment oh. uh, but but i think you know um, do you, the culture varies as well uh, do you think yes. the culture and social factor influence the success or failure of you know decriminalization policies in different countries for example if we implement these policies uh, all around the world um, do you think it will um, successful as it, as they thought to be successful in uh, portugal well it's a difficult one i mean because because all so many countries have uh, suffered different levels with with heroin for example mm-hmm. don't they and and i think portugal just may their government is more willing to engage and provide the services services mm-hmm. required um globally and for england mm, i'm not sure whether it would work at this moment in time mm-hmm. as it has in portugal mm-hmm. um just from my experience with in the past when i've dealt with clients who have um been addicted to heroin mm-hmm. it's 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 and and they have gone to prison and they've come out and they committed offences soon after mm. to fund this habit is coming out of you know there needs to be more structure in place yes, for yes. them and and i think until we maybe we can copy that model mm. like portugal uh, until then um i think we may struggle in decriminalizing such a serious drug as heroin or class a brilliant so how does the you know how does the availability of drug treatment and rehabilitation program impact your you know uh defense strategies for clients facing drug uh, you know uh, allegations in areas with uh, decriminalization policies well um i do have to think about this carefully i mean at the moment there are there are six out of court 
disposal options available and that's like a community resolution uh, for cannabis and catch you can get a warning there's a, a penalty notice for disorder and then you get the caution the adult caution simple caution or the adult conditional caution the adult conditional caution is the only disposal that provides any form of treatment for drug misuse um, this conditional caution is provided by the Criminal Justice Act mm-hmm. 2003, Section 22, and it requires that an offender comply with certain conditions as an alternative to prosecute, and one of those will be um, attending on a drug intervention course. Um, and this course that's provided by the conditional caution, it's called a DIP, um, this is to directly address drug misusing offenders by getting them to address their behaviour. Mm-hmm. The problem is a conditional caution, whilst it's not a conviction, it does form part of a criminal record and there will be a requirement for them to disclose this again if they go for employment in the future or in education. So it has that, that continuing problem. For, for me, I think, in terms of my strategies, if I'm advising a client, where appropriate, I would ask, I would seek to encourage the police to impose a conditional caution. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if this would impact my client so significantly that he could lose his job because he would have to declare it and he works in professional ind- you know, um, services, it may mean that I don't recommend to the police that they impose that and we go for something else, like a mm-hmm. simple adult caution. But the problem there is that the client won't receive, it will say keep his job, but he won't receive the help in addressing the drug misuse. Mm-hmm. Changes are required. If there's going to be decriminalisation uh, for the offence of possession for personal use to address the drug use, there needs to be some more and additional disposals available to the police that provide rehabilitation mm-hmm. programmes and signposting. Right. And this will ensure that they get the treatment. Um, but So, yes, yeah, to, to, to decriminalise, they need to look at putting more options in place. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, uh, thank you for your time, Nicola. It was, uh, oh, it was lovely speaking you to you. And I uh, hope you have a, n- a very nice evening as well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much Take for coming. Thank Take you, Mark. Good evening. Bye. 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 Once again, you're listening to the second hour of Voice of Islam and you could contact us, but we only have about five more minutes left anyways. But let's crack on. International examples. Some countries have implemented forms of drug decriminalization with varying outcomes. Portugal, for instance, as you've Mm. mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, decriminalized personal possession of drugs in 2001 and redirected resources towards prevention and treatment. This approach has been praised for reducing drug-related deaths and HIV transmission. The decision on whether decriminalization is the answer to drug misuse requires careful consideration of both public health and broader societal consequences. A comprehensive study would involve not only decriminalization but also investments in healthcare, education and support systems. Yeah, so, you know, potential solution beyond decriminalization. So addressing drug misuse requires a multi-phase approach, you know, and that, yeah, yeah, uh, and that, you know, multi-phased um, approach and that includes not only decriminalization yeah. but also prevention, education, treatment and support for individuals in society. So I think only decriminalization something does not make I think 
you know right in a right way as, you, as argued by our you know uh, the, experts as absolutely, well absolutely yeah. and they also stress upon this point that there should be education treatment and support for the individuals in recovery so comprehensive harm uh, reduction strategies access to mental health services and social support networks are vital components of any solution so allah the almighty says in chapter 4 verse 44 o ye who believe approach not prayer when you are not in full possession of your senses until you know what you say and if you are you know high on any types of drug then don't approach prayer this is what the above holy quranic verse is in is is implying so prayer are essential part of a muslim faith and so if you are unable to pray due to intoxication then a true muslim would keep themselves as far away as they are so this is in islam so it is a very famous hadith of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that uh, the the thing which intoxicate you the small amount of that thing is also prohibited so the islam goes on the saying that uh, the uh, the you know uh, the cure mm-hmm. uh, the prevention is better than the prevention is better than actually going and you know just committing the mistake yeah. right so, so Carry on. So this is this is the Islamic, you know, yeah. uh, the philosophy that one should not go in that area where there is a risk, even risk involved of using that drug, a uh, bad company, depression, and all of these stuff. Education should be there, health services, all of these. So DCRs are places where individuals can use drugs under medical supervision. These facilities often provide sterile injection equipment, emergency medical support, and access to addiction treatment services. The primary goal of DCRs is harm reduction with the aim of reducing overdose deaths preventing the spread of blood-borne diseases and connecting people with addiction treatment and support services. Well, um more in terms of the conclusion the issue of drug misuse is complex and multifaceted and a role of decriminalization is one aspect of the larger conversation the merits and drawbacks of decriminalization should be weighed against the broader goal of reducing harm providing treatment and improving health, uh, public health Coll- collaborative efforts between policymakers healthcare professionals communities and individuals affected by drug misuse are essential to charting a path forward that addresses the root causes and consequences of this challenge it is important to note that drugs and alcohol are used as a means of escape from overwhelming difficulties and mm. responsibilities the attitude of one who is, who has truly embraced the teaching of islam cannot be compatible with a state of despair a true muslim place has resilience in on allah for the relief of hardship when the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him proclaimed allah's commandment concerning intoxicants his followers broke their pots and jugs of wine until the streets flowed with it islam understands that it may not be easy for a person to break away from addiction so it does not exclude or discourage the use of outside resources such as counseling or rehabilitation but the most potent tool is prayer and begging for allah's mercy now we have come to a end to our um, show today we would like to thank the producers who provided with us with all this information and these wonderful scripts um uh, aisha tahir and uh, tahmina tahir and also aiza rabani for the first hour and with that we go to the 6 o'clock news